0: What's really important with Isthmus dining company was that I kind of closed that gap between the customer and the chef, and you know, really be able to go out and talk. You know, when I do these nomadic restaurants, to go out and talk to all the customers that come in, really let them know what they're eating, why I cooked it, how I cooked it, um, you know, and just really become closer to the customer and just kind of, you know, just bridge that gap.
1: Welcome to The Quarter Table, a podcast about food and drink in Madison, produced by the Capital Times. A few years ago, Chef Rob Grisham left the world of restaurant kitchens and founded Isthmus Dining Company, a nomadic restaurant that never stays in one place for too long. About a quarter of his dinners are in private homes, and the rest are pop-ups in spots like Masha Tea Company, Gibbs Bar, the underground space on Allen Street the former Bonzo Shuk on Williamson, and Taliesin Preservation out in Spring Green. I am Lindsay Christians, food writer for the Cap Times, and on this week's episode, I spoke with Rob about the freedom this ever-moving company has offered him, and how it has changed the way he cooks. Give a listen. Welcome, Rob. Hello. Thank you so much for coming in.
0: You're very welcome.
1: So first of all, tell us who you are and a little bit about what you do.
0: My name is Rob Grisham. Um, I am the chef owner of Ismus Dining Company, which is a, a nomadic restaurant concept based here in Madison.
1: Why do you call it a nomadic restaurant concept? What, what does that mean?
0: Um, it, it basically just means that I can't afford a real restaurant and um, I go cook. In other people's kitchens and pay them money for it.
1: Is it like a pop-up?
0: Um, yeah, it's 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 definitely like a pop-up. Um, sometimes I'll do, you know, multiple days at a time or like in-home dinners as well or even some cooking classes every now and then. So it just depends on the occasion.
1: Why did you decide to start a Smith Dining Company a couple of years ago?
0: Well, I was um, just, I kind of wanted to do you know, being a chef, every chef kind of has their own idea or concept of, you know, that they want to execute. And I just wasn't really finding what I, you know, needed or was inspired by uh, at the time in Madison and just kind of wanted to go off on my own and try it, you know, just try something new and kind of see where it, where it took me. I kind of started it knowing that it was going to be an open-ended concept so it could kind of like morph into whatever it's it's going to morph into. <laughs>
1: when you started it, I'm sure you had some ideas about what it might look like. And I'm wondering how the concept and the structure has evolved since you started it.
0: Yes, interesting. So it started, um, you know, I kind of wanted to do like in-home meal preparation as well, just kind of as supplemental income when there wasn't a lot of pop-ups or in-home dinners. Um, But then there was some uh, really good opportunities that came up and I was able to do more of the uh, nomadic restaurant thing. And I had um, a pretty good amount of in-home dinners going on as well. So I actually canceled the meal preparation and just went right to the kind of restaurant concept.
1: Who are some of your primary partners that you work with kind of frequently?
0: Uh, Partners as far as like purveyors or...
1: Places where you have the... Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah.
0: So um, let's see, where have I had pop-ups? I've done pop-ups at Matcha Tea Company. Um, I've done pop-ups at um, the underground food space, which is on Allen Street. Um, did I'm currently doing um, a nomadic restaurant at the Bonzo Shook uh, space on Williamson Street, um, as well as a lot of uh, in-home dinners as well. So
1: I actually had my birthday dinner a few years ago at... At Matcha. Matcha. It was amazing. I remember
0: right where you were sitting. Yeah, it was great. (laughs) And it was really... That was one of the first.
1: It was really fun. And it was really, like, very springy, because my birthday's at the end of April. Mm -hmm. And um, it was just a very sort of spring-inspired menu, which I thought was really fun. I've noticed you've done some things at, like, Gibbs. Yep, Um, Gibbs. Are you going to be working with Porter at all? And
0: Porter, yeah. So I uh, met with Gil the other day, and we were kind of... Uh, shooting around some ideas for, because he does the Porter Dinner Club over there. Yeah, I and, went to that recently. Yeah, um, and I had kind of thrown a couple ideas at him, and there's there's a few things we're working on. So
1: that'll be really cool. Mm-hmm. What are the benefits of having kind of a pop up sort of nomadic restaurant concept versus having something that's more brick and mortar, open certain hours every day? What are the what are the benefits and what are the challenges of that?
0: Yeah, well the. The benefits, uh, the obvious uh, benefits, are full control of what the menu is going to be, full control of where you're getting the produce or meat or whatever it may be. Um, You know, you don't need to order in a ton of ingredients to stock a a restaurant. You know, you can kind of create your menu, know how many people you're going to have, how big the portions are going to be. Like, You can really, really dial it in. Um, I would say some of the downsides are, um, you know, just the normal things that you would run in, uh, run into anytime you travel and set up shop somewhere. You know, at the end of the night, you gotta load up all your dishes, wrap everything up, and cart everything around. As opposed to having a restaurant, having a walk-in cooler where you can store everything. You know, it just it's very different sourcing the ingredients because you have to, if I'm going to use microgreens for a dinner or edible flowers, I can't get them a week ahead of time. You know, I I kind of have to stagger my orders because I, you know, only have so much space and yeah.
1: It strikes me that it would also take a lot of hustle to set a lot of this stuff up.
0: Yeah. And after a while, I kind of have my mobile kitchen, if you want to call it that. Like I have certain things that I bring, I have my serviceware and my my kitchen aid and, you know, pans and tools and things like that. So after you do it, you kind of know what you'll need every time, but each each dinner is different.
1: Where do you find inspiration for putting your menus together? I've noticed that, um You you use a lot of different ingredients sort of uh, internationally, like not just sort of locally sourced produce and things like that, but also things like tigurashi and queso fresco, international kinds of influences on the food that you're making. And I wonder how you put those menus together, like where you get inspiration.
0: Yeah. So I like with the menu, I'll start uh, like with this menu in front of you right there. There's celery root. Um, spinach, some sable fish. This is an in-home dinner, so this was November 30th of last year. So winter. There's citrus on here. There's cabbage, um, spice cake, aronia berry, uh, parsnip, celery root, apple. So you know, I, I just really start with what is available at the market, and I, you know, I've. I've been lucky enough to maintain some of these partnerships and relationships with purveyors. From when I was at Brasserie V, I get their availability lists, see what they have.
1: When you're doing an in-home dinner, do you talk with the people who are hosting yeah. it and say, you know, because it's usually not more than, what, 15 people?
0: Yeah, so I'll, I'll kind of have like a, a preliminary consultation with them if they have any dietary restrictions or sensitivities, any dislikes, any... I've had some people say that, you know, they love their grandmother's chocolate cake and they want that for dessert. So, you know, I'll, I'll make their grandmother's chocolate cake recipe for them, you know, if they really want it. And, like, kind of see what they have in their kitchen and what kind of plates they have. Or, or if they have a stand mixer, I'm not going to cart my stand mixer over to their house, you know. So I'll, I'll have, the, like, a preliminary consultation to kind of s- see what they're all about, see what they're like and then just kind of go from there after you you meet them.
1: This structure has allowed you to do some really high-end dinners. Um, You've been collaborating with Taliesin Preservation for uh, several dinners, and Mm -hmm. I've I've got one of those menus here in front of me, and it's multi-course. There's a red wattle pork rib chop with an amber malt glaze on it. There's a braised beet as a starter with orange zest and thyme and smoked salt. You've got wood-grilled vegetables, um, an apple terrine. It looks like it might have been a fall menu.
0: Yep, that makes sense. So that was actually, um, it rained that night. That was going to be an outdoor farm dinner at the Taliesin. Um, And we had gotten in like 50 cinder blocks and had this metal worker from Spring Green make a custom grill grate. And you can see the pictures on my Instagram feed, but we still constructed this grill and we used I kind of gave it like a cantilever shelf to kind of like mimic the Frank Lloyd Wright design, and uh, we used wood from the land, and all the veggies were from Fazenda Boa, and it was really cool. That was, that was more family style. Uh, we got the pork from Seven Seeds, which was just a couple miles down the road, um, you know, because Frank Lloyd Wright's all about the terroir and being one with the land, so I really wanted to, you know, do that with the menu as well.
1: That's really cool. One of the challenges with a menu like this is that, you know, at $250 a head, people want to know what the menu is going to be pretty well in advance, but you're working with such seasonal ingredients. And in Wisconsin, the season for something can be three weeks Mm -hmm. or, you know, less. And you don't always know what's going to be in season when. Last summer, the squash came super early for whatever reason. You have to plan these menus, not necessarily knowing what's going to be great. Is that a challenge for you?
0: Yeah, um it you know it is a challenge, but you can always write a you know you can always at least give a skeleton of a menu because you know that you'll have certain things. I mean, I know in September I'll have beets, I can get some cauliflower, you know, all these things. And then when it comes closer to the event, you can kind of, you know, refine it and you know just kind of start with what you know you'll have and give a good outline of that and then just kind of just go from there.
1: Do you like this sort of nomadic structure better than having a brick and mortar restaurant? Do you want to go back to having a permanent restaurant someday?
0: Yeah, um I I certainly intend on you know one day opening my own place, uh smaller, probably 15 to 20 seats, probably less than that. Um you know just I what's really important with this Dining company was that I kind of close that gap between the customer and the chef and, you know, really be able to go out and talk, you know, when I do these nomadic restaurants to go out and talk to all the customers that come in, really let them know what they're eating, why I cooked it, how I cooked it, you know, and just really become closer to the customer and just kind of, you know, just bridge that gap.
1: Do you think that having done this for a couple of years, by the time you open your own place that is brick and mortar, will it be different than if you had come straight out of restaurants and gone into opening your own?
0: Yeah, and I think it already has changed the way that I cook, and that's kind of what I was looking forward to maybe. Um, Really being able to do food that I find inspiring, and hopefully it inspires other people, and just, I don't know, like it's really allowed me to put so much care into each individual dish instead of worrying about serving, you know, 150 people a night, you're just serving, you know, 15. Or if you had a restaurant, you would ideally do like two seatings. So 30 people a night. And, you know, that's a very small amount of people. But I think when you go and have that kind of experience, those are the kind of dining experiences that you really remember when you can as opposed to just going out to eat at a restaurant and you never talk to the chef or, or even the server sometimes, you know, they just bring you your food and you go home and, and then you kind of forget about it as opposed to if you go out to eat and the, the chef or server comes out and, you know, tells you a story or, or does like anything other than just drop the food off, you're more likely to feel connected with that meal or to remember it down the road and you know and that's really what I want when people are done eating you know I want them to feel like they got their money's worth and the food was good and all that but I want them to really remember the experience and yeah that's what it's all about
1: I as I mentioned I recently went to Porter Dinner Club mm-hmm. on their sort of opening weekend a few weeks ago and they said this should be kind of like you're at a friend's house or something, and you can come up, you can come back behind the counter and watch, you know, Gail and Mike cooking. You can kind of move about the space. You can talk with your neighbors maybe even if you don't know them. So small group of people, and then the food was just beautiful. But I could ask questions, and it strikes me that that's, that's almost like the model at Ardent a little bit too, which is a higher-end place in Milwaukee, but it's it's, again, that connection, that closer connection between the diner and the kitchen without so much in between I think yeah which is not to say the front of house is not wonderful but it's a different structure
0: yeah well and it kind of allows your front of house and back of house to become like a cohesive um unit you know I think when you have a model um like Ardent or Porter Dinner Club you can you know allow people to work all facets of the of the restaurant you know and allow the servers to understand the food better and allow the cooks to understand the service better.
1: Are there dinners that you've made over the past couple of years with a Smith's Dining Company that are particularly memorable for you?
0: Well, yes. Um, I had a chance to cook um, a private lunch party for Clyde Stubblefield. Um, probably that was like six months after it started. You'd have to, you know, there's the picture. Online on Instagram, which was great. Did it at one of his friend's house. It was like twelve people. Um, it was really, really fascinating. Um, who was there? Richard Davis was there. Polly Ryan, good friend of mine, uh, kind of set up the dinner for me, and it was just—it was a trip, you know. I put together this menu for Clyde Stubblefield and all of his friends, and it was his birthday, Clyde's birthday, and he didn't like the menu, so I—he wanted me to make him a fish sandwich, so I. I made the regular menu for everybody else, and then I made Clyde's fish sandwich, which he enjoyed. And, you know, he's great.
1: That's really cool.
0: And then, you know, the, the dinners at the Essen are memorable. My grandfather, um, who's not with us any longer, but he was an architect, and one of his major inspirations in the house that he designed even was from Frank Lloyd Wright. So it's it's nice to be able to tell my grandma that I'm, I'm cooking it the Taliesin, and you know, she just loves it. And so,
1: I recently wrote a story about a new program they're starting the Taliesin Food Artisan Program, I think,
0: mm-hmm. with Odessa, right? with
1: Odessa, and with Barbara Wright, who's the mm-hmm. chef out there. And one of the reasons they're starting it is to help young chefs and mid career people who are making a career change learn how to better use local and seasonal ingredients and to work with farmers and producers and to kind of make that connection. And it strikes me that that's, that's exactly kind of what you're doing too, right? You're you're using this nomadic structure to be able to work with these producers that you have relationships with and you can be a little bit more flexible.
0: Yeah, definitely. Like um, I did a couple, like three days in a row at Quince in uh, New Glarus, And, you know, I, I used... Uh, Garden to be and Elderberry and um, Hickory Hill Farm, you know, like the usual suspects that I use. But once I got to New Glarus, I was able to use um, like Raleigh's Hillside Farm as one of them. And wherever you go, you can just kind of adapt and and use what they have available.
1: Yeah, that's cool. What are you looking forward to in the spring?
0: Well, there's um, the first two weekends in April, um, the April 6th and 7th, and the 13th and 14th, I'm doing uh, the second installment of a very temporary restaurant, uh, which is at the Bonzo Shook Space on Willie Street, 1511 Willie, Um, and that's from 5 to 9, and that will have uh, like an a la carte menu, five or six item a la carte menu, as well as uh, a tasting menu that you could get as well. I'm doing uh, the dinner series at the Taliesin again, the Cultivated Cuisine Dinner Series on the 21st of April, and there's still a couple tickets available. And I'm tentatively doing another one there uh, the 19th of May as well, and um, hopefully at the end of April I'll be getting together with Gil and collaborating um, on a menu at Porter Dinner Club.
1: So Isthmus Dining Company and Porter Dinner Club IDC PDC.
0: IDC PDC. It has a nice <laughs> ring to it, doesn't it? It really does. Yeah.
1: Well, thank you so much for coming in today.
0: Of course. Anytime.
1: This has been The Corner Table, a podcast about food and drink in Madison produced by the Capital Times. Our music was composed by Patrick Christians. A very temporary restaurant from Rob Grisham pops up this weekend at Bonzo Shook, and the best way to find out about future pop-ups from Isthmus Dining Company is to follow them on Facebook. You can also follow this podcast at Corner Table Podcast, and subscribe to The Corner Table wherever you get your podcasts. I am your host, Cap Times food writer, Lindsay Christians. My wish for you this week is roasted carrots. My favorite way to make them lately is with toasted walnuts, feta cheese, and fresh herbs. Cheers.